0: morning. Our first reading this morning is from the prophet Isaiah, um, chapter 27, so beginning at verse 2 of chapter 27. In that day, sing about a fruitful vineyard. I, the Lord, watch over it. I water it continually. I guard it day and night, so that no one may harm it. I am not angry. If only there were briars and thorns confronting me, I would march against them in battle. I would set them all on fire, or else let them come to me for refuge. Let them make peace with me. Yes, let them make peace with me. In days to come, Jacob will take root. Israel will bud and blossom and fill all the world with fruit. Our second reading this morning is from what's become my favourite book in the Bible, Romans. Reading chapter 11. I ask then, did God reject his people? By no means. I am an Israelite myself, a descendant from Abraham, from the tribe of Benjamin. God did not reject his people, whom he foreknew, Don't you know what Scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he appealed to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I am the only one left, and they are trying to kill me. And what was God's answer to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace, and if by grace then it cannot be based on works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. What then? What the people of Israel sought so earnestly, they did not obtain. The elect among them did, but the others were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that could not see and ears that could not hear to this very day. And David says, May their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. May their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and their backs be bent forever. Again I ask, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. But if their transgression means riches for the world and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their full inclusion bring? I am talking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch as I am the apostle to the Gentiles, I take pride in my ministry in the hope that I may somehow arouse my own people to envy and save some of them. For if their rejection brought reconciliation to the world what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? If the part of the dough offered as first fruits is holy, then the whole batch is holy. If the root is holy, so are the branches. If some of the branches have been broken off, and you, though a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root, do not consider yourself to be superior to those other branches. If you do... Consider this, you do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in, granted, but they were broken off because of unbelief, and you stand by faith. Do not be arrogant, but tremble, for if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Consider therefore the kindness of And sternness of God, sternness to those who who fell, but kindness to you, provided that you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. And if they do not persist in unbelief, they will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. After all, if you were cut out of an olive tree that that is wild by nature, and contrary to nature, were grafted into a cultivated olive tree... How much more readily will these, the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob." And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As far as the gospel is concerned, they are enemies for your sake, but as far as election is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarchs, for God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. Just as you who were at one time disobedient to God have now received mercy as a result of their disobedience, So they too have now become disobedient in order that they too may now receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. For God has bound everyone over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counsellor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen.
1: Good morning. My name's Stephen, one of the ministers here. And last week, I actually haven't been here for a few weeks, been on holidays and last week I got to be up at um, Trinity Church, Golden Grove, preaching up there. That was a a church that was planted from us here back in 2016 and it meets up at Padere College at Golden Grove. And as I was leaving there last week, I noticed that as, as you come out of the doors of their building, you get this great view down south towards Modbury. And the hills in the distance, it's lovely. And they're framed right in the middle, is Modbury Hospital. And so as I was leaving, I said to Stephen Young, who used to be here amongst us before he went on the church plant, I said to him, I love the way that every time you leave church, you get to look out across at Modbury Hospital, where Trinity Church Modbury first began, that's where we used to meet, and you're reminded of your roots. And do you know what he said to me in this touching moment? He said, "Ah, oh, I've never even noticed that You can see Modbury Hospital from here. <laughs> he didn't even pretend that he'd noticed. Now, sometimes knowing and, and staying connected to your roots is really important. Sometimes it really doesn't matter that much. And in the case of a church plant, it's, it's not really that important, not that vital. We want them to move on. We want them to grow. We don't want them to kind of stay connected and dependent on us. But sometimes knowing... And staying connected to your roots is critical. If you work for a, a multinational kind of company with an office that, that has an office here in Adelaide, if you start operating like your office is independent of the rest, your office is superior and, and sets its own agenda and priorities, then things are probably not going to go too well for you in that company. Well, as Mark said before, there was, there was a danger of something a little bit like this happening in the church at Rome the danger was that some of the Gentiles, some of these non-Jewish Christians, people probably like most of us, some of them were starting to think of themselves as superior to the Jews. And not so much in an anti-Semitic kind of racist way, but in the sense that it, it looked like God was moving on from his people and had decided that the future of his growing kingdom would now be thoroughly Gentile. It looked like the dawning of a new age in God's kingdom had come. And so in some of their minds, it would be the age of the rise of Gentiles in God's kingdom. And it would be superior and it would replace the past. Way back at the beginning of this series when we started it, around this time last year, uh, you probably don't remember this, but, but as we started, we talked about how in Rome, the Jewish Christians would have been a very, very small minority. In about AD 49, the Emperor Claudius had expelled all Jews from Rome. So this church that was mostly Jews and Gentiles would have suddenly been just Gentiles. Paul writes this letter probably about eight years after that event. But even aside from that particular situation in Rome, actually right across the the Mediterranean world, right across the board, the scales had started to tip from Christianity being entirely Jewish at the beginning to a minority Gentile to something quite shocking. It was becoming equally Gentile, majority Gentile, even. We're so used to that today that it doesn't seem that unusual. But think about what this would have looked like for them back then. Growth of the followers of Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, was stalling in the Jewish world while non-Jews were flooding, flooding to this foreign faith, this foreign Messiah, what were the people to make of that? Well, that's what Romans chapter 9, 10 and 11 is all about. Paul is telling them what they should make of it. And he's correcting some of the ways that people were misunderstanding what it was all about. So, for example, a couple of months ago, we, we looked at chapter 9 And Paul addressed the misunderstanding there that perhaps God was failing his people, maybe that was what was going on. And we saw, Paul said, God never fails the people that he chooses. We saw in that chapter that not all Israel is Israel but only those God chooses to show mercy to are Israel. It was actually quite a confronting chapter but we saw that God's choice of Israel, the nation, as his people collectively, needs to be understood alongside his choice of individuals within Israel to be his eternal people. Well, today Paul addresses a similar but a slightly different question. So if God wasn't failing his people, perhaps, he says in verse 1, did God reject his people? Perhaps God's finally fed up with them and was moving on to greener pastures. Now that's the misunderstanding that Paul corrects today. And first of all, he says God did not reject his people because his hardening of them is only partial. This is the first big idea. God did not reject his people because he reserves a remnant. Paul says he himself is an example of, of a Jew not rejected by God and he says he's not the only example. He says in verse 2, God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. Just like before, he's saying not all Israel is Israel. God chooses Israel collectively as a nation but he chooses individuals within that to be a part of his eternal plans. And, And Paul reminds them that that's actually not a new idea. That's an idea that has always been there. He gives them an example with Elijah, way back in the Old Testament. Elijah, if you know the story and and he reminds them of the story here, he despaired because he thought that things were so bad in Israel that he was literally the only person left who had not rejected God and he was convinced that, that they were about to kill him as well. And Paul writes that Elijah at that point appealed to God against Israel. He actually goes to Mount Sinai, the the roots of Israel, where Israel started. He goes to God and he appeals to God against Israel. It's almost like he's appealing to God to reject this people who have rejected him. But even at that point, such a disappointing point, such a failure of God's people, God would not reject his people. Instead, God's answer to their great failure and his answer to Elijah's appeal in verse 4 he says, I have reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal, this false God. Even when almost all Israel rejected God, God won't reject all Israel. He acts to to reserve for himself, to keep for himself a small part of Israel out of grace. And so Paul says to them here, it's the same in their time. Look at verse 5. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. Notice across this section that this point keeps getting repeated. It all boils down to God's choice to show grace to some. All humanity actually rejects God, without exception. But for some people, God chooses to intervene out of his grace to bring them to faith. And those he doesn't bring to faith, we read in verse 7, he hardens them. He hardens them in their unbelief. It's quite confronting and we're not going to spend any more time on that because we looked at it quite a bit in chapter 9. You can uh, go back and listen to that talk if if that's still something you're figuring out. So we've seen God isn't rejecting his people because his hardening of them is only partial. It's only partial. And next we see in this chapter that God isn't rejecting his people because his hardening of them is only temporary. This is the second big idea. God intends to save all Israel. It'd be easy for these these Gentiles in Rome, and, and for us today, to think that Israel's fall must spell the end of the Old Testament vision for Israel. It'd be easy to think that what's happening is that the elect minority within Israel need to flee from Israel, like fleeing from a sinking ship. They need to jump on board to something new, the Church of the Gentiles... But what we see in this second part of the chapter is that there's no such thing as the church of the Gentiles. Look at verse 11, where we see this fleshed out. Paul writes, again I ask, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Was it too late for Israel? Was it all over for Israel? Well, he says, not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious somehow there's still a place for Israel in God's plan and Paul says this this is actually great news for all of us Gentiles included he says if their transgression means riches for the world and their loss means riches for the Gentiles how much greater riches will their full inclusion bring See what's happening here. The Gentiles are not rising out of the ashes of Israel to take their place. Israel still has a place in God's plan, and it, it's us, Gentiles, who are playing a part in their story. Look at verse thirteen. Paul says, "I'm talking to you, Gentiles. Inasmuch as I am the apostle to the Gentiles, I take pride in my ministry. Why?" Because Gentiles are the future? No, he takes pride in his ministry to Gentiles, verse 14, in the hope that I may somehow arouse my people to envy and save some of them. This story is not really about us. It's their story. But we're enriched as their story plays out. I don't know if you've noticed this phenomenon, but um, humans are fairly prone to take on meta narratives. We're, we're prone to giving events in history that we see around us a kind of overarching meaning. Have, have you seen this happen? You know, there's extreme and, and really evil and terrible versions of this that, w- that we shudder at, like the Third Reich and the rightful rise of the superior German Empire and the Aryan race. But there's meta-narratives like that. But there's also meta-narratives that we're probably more familiar with and and actually more comfortable with. Like the idea that Western democracy will inevitably triumph and will ultimately be invincible. It's destined to cover the face of the earth and bring a time of ongoing peace and prosperity. But suddenly that meta-narrative feels a bit foolish in the light of Chinese meta-narratives and the idea that the central kingdom will be reestablished and reverse the humiliation of the world, or Russian narratives at the moment. Paul is telling the, the Gentile Christians that are prone to taking on a, a meta-narrative here, that while, yes, they have equal footing in the kingdom of God. I mean, we've seen so much of that across the, the, the book of Romans, haven't we? Yes, they have equal footing in the kingdom of God, but no, they're not superior. This flood of Gentiles and this trickle of Jews, it was not the rise of of Gentiles to replace Israel. We're joining their ship and not the other way around. God has one meta-narrative, if you like. One meta-narrative that he never has abandoned and that he never will abandon Let me see if I can kind of capture the essence of this chapter in in a couple of diagrams. This, This story that God has, its roots stretch right back to his promises in the beginning to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob to form a people for himself. And God's promises grew in Israel. And Jesus came not to replace these promises but to fulfill God's promises to Israel. And us Gentiles, we could never replace that this tree either, these promises. We could only ever join it. Now, not only do we read in this chapter that this meta-narrative is not being replaced, we read it's still happening. This tree is still growing. Paul tells them that the story of Israel is, is playing out in their present, and it will play out in the future. Look at verse 25. He says, I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part, there's the idea of part, partial, until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. God is using, using the hardening of Israel to save Gentiles, and the mystery is that God will use the saving of Gentiles to somehow save all Israel. And then, when that happens, look at where this meta narrative ends in verse 15. Paul writes, if, For if their rejection brought reconciliation to the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? The story of Israel is caught up with the return of Jesus and the resurrection of. Of God's people. Now, I don't know about you, even with all the diagrams in the world, I still find it hard to know exactly what's going on, exactly what Paul is talking about here. It's, it's quite confusing. And especially, I find it hard to know exactly what he means by, all Israel will be saved. Does he mean every Israelite who ever lived will be saved? Well, we know he can't mean that. We've seen him say over and over again in Romans that that's not the case at all. Does he mean all Israel who are the elect, who are chosen by God, will be saved? Remember, not all Israel is Israel. Now that, that's quite possible. That's what he means in this passage. He could mean all true Israel chosen by God will be saved. Or on the other hand, does he mean all the nation of Israel who are living at that time? In history that they will all be saved it's hard to know but whatever the case may be when you read this chapter it really does read like God's plan is that there'll be a time when the tide changes and suddenly there won't be a trickle from Israel being saved there'll be a flood I remember sitting on the beach one time when the tide was changing And for most of the time, you couldn't even tell that the tide was changing. It's just so incremental and and slow. But there must have been a point where the the tide reached the top of the slope of the sand. Because one moment we were metres back from the edge of the sea. And the next moment we had water flowing around us and well beyond us like a mini tsunami. And we were scrambling for towels and beach toys and babies, probably in a different order... But it was just nothing, nothing, and then overwhelming. This chapter seems to tell us that God's plan at some point is to stop hardening his people. When the full number of Gentiles has come in, at that point, God will bring in all Israel, whatever that means, and Jesus will return. Now, it is worth keeping in mind, just like in English, all doesn't necessarily always mean absolutely every individual. Uh, It's the same in Greek. You know, if I said at the BBL Grand Final on Friday night, all the people were cheering loudly, okay, I don't mean every single person at Marvel Stadium from babies through to the bar staff were necessarily cheering. By all in that case, you mean the great majority, Probably what Paul is saying here is that at some point, Israel as a corporate people, not just a trickle of elect individuals, some point Israel as a corporate people is going to embrace Jesus. And in God's plan, that will mean the coming of life from the dead for this broken world. It will be right at the end of things, just before Jesus returns and erases sin and sadness and sickness and death from this world for good. By bringing in his kingdom but whatever the case Jew and Gentile will only enter that kingdom only enter eternal life because of God's mercy so that's Romans 11 quite a, a tricky passage okay now what do we do with it what do we do with that is it just a, a, a sketch of God's plan for the The future that's interesting and confusing, but more or less irrelevant for day-to-day living now? Well, Paul doesn't think so at all. Did you notice that as we were reading this? He thinks this has got a lot to say to those people back then and us right now. The big point he makes across this chapter is that God's plan for salvation leads us to humility. This passage isn't irrelevant to us at all. It should change our way of thinking And it should change our way of living. Because God's plan for salvation should lead all people to humility. But this has especially got to be the case for us, who I presume most of us are not Jewish here. Look at verse 19. Paul says, You will say then, this is what the Gentiles will be tempted to say, branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in. And Paul says this is actually true. He says, granted. But he says, this says nothing about our superiority. Instead, he says, but they were broken off because of unbelief. And you stand by faith. We get confused about what faith really means. See it all the time. People, we always get confused about what faith really means. But this passage actually helps us see what faith really means. It shows us the shape of the kind of faith that God wants us to have. God wants us to have an awareness of our own unworthiness and his mercy. He wants our confidence to be not in ourselves, but in his mercy. He wants our assessment of ourselves to not be that we're superior to others, but that we're simply shown mercy that we don't deserve. And this affects our thinking and it affects our our living in real ways. Paul says in verse 20 there, Do not be arrogant, but tremble. That's very practical. That's the shape of the kind of faith that God wants us to have. Faith that's in the shape of humility. Is that the shape of your faith? Is your faith in God in the shape of humility? You will have noticed that some parents are, Particularly cautious with their kids. They're particularly unwilling to trust other people with their children. And and for some parents, that means they're untrusting with modern medicine and and doctors. They prefer to treat their kids naturally. But have you ever seen a child with a burst appendix? Even a parent who finds it hard to trust other people with their child and, and finds it hard to trust modern medicine and doctors. Even a parent like that reaches a point with burst appendix where they can see that they don't have what it takes to fix their child. Kathy and I once looked after uh, three kids from a family of four kids where the daughter had a burst appendix. And we had them, we looked after the kids so the parents could be there with their daughter. We had them for a full week and I can tell you it was a desperate situation that was touch and go the entire time. A burst appendix brings a parent to their knees and they realise all their efforts are useless. They realise their child is going to stand again only if they entrust them into the hands of the surgeon. No other way. What we see in this passage and in Romans as a whole is that that is the shape of faith. Faith has the shape that you come to realise that unless you entrust your life into the mercy of God, into Jesus, you've got no hope of standing to see the light of day. You will answer God, why did you disobey me? Why? And you won't have an answer. Have you reached that point where your faith is in the shape of humility? If you haven't today is the day to reach it faith has got the shape of an awareness of a desperate our desperate need for grace and what this means and what paul is tracing out in this chapter is that faith is never compatible with feeling superior or boasting faith is always in the shape of humility You know, what mother boasts that she almost cured her child's burst appendix? That as she kept them back that week from the hospital in agony, that she was almost successful? If anyone boasts in that situation, they boast in the doctors and the nurses. No parent feels superior or conceited in their own abilities. What this passage does, if we spend the time in it listening to the voice of the Holy Spirit... This passage is so helpful in driving home the shape of our faith. It's humility. It's admitting to God and ourselves our disobedience. It's confidence in God's mercy only. Christian faith is always in the shape of humility. And if it's not, then it's not faith. Is your faith in God in the shape of humility? Humility. And notice what Paul especially does in this passage is he then shows us what this means because it takes us further and it shows us that the shape of faith is is not only humility towards God but it's humility towards others. Look at verse 18. Paul says, do not consider yourself to be superior to those other branches. We're grafted into what naturally belongs to Israel and so we can't feel superior to them Instead, humility opens our eyes to see that our roots are Jewish. We need to stay connected to our roots. Now, this doesn't mean we become Jewish. This doesn't mean we we take on the customs of Jews at all. You know, some people put a strange emphasis on Hebrew words and, and customs and names for God as if calling him El Shaddai. Instead of God Almighty has some sort of secret power or benefit for us, Paul tells us those sorts of things are actually powerless and a distraction from Jesus. We don't honor our roots by trying to appear Jewish. We honor our roots by knowing and respecting the story that we've been grafted into. We honor our roots by knowing and reading and being shaped in our character by Scripture, including the Old Testament. And it's actually not just the case that we shouldn't feel superior to Jews. If we see the truth that we're grafted into what God is doing only by mercy, not by anything good in us, then the implications of that is even broader. It means we can't feel superior to anyone, whether they're Christian or not. Now I think actually this is especially important for us to hear. Because what reputation to Bible-believing Christians often get in our culture arrogance and is there truth to it sadly yes there is sometimes but when we come across someone who's who's a religious kind of person who thinks their rituals and their religion and they're going to church or the mosque or the temple and saying the right prayers think they think all those things are going to make them right with God does that kind of person make us feel superior Or when you come across the person who's all theology, who thinks their right doctrines and beliefs, make them the only group that's on the right track, the person who says all the right things but is cold and hard and proud, does that kind of person make us feel superior? Or when you come across the person who doesn't believe the Bible as God's word at all, who's completely compromised in everything they do and believe, They, they can't even recognize them as a Christian does that person make us feel superior? Or when we come across the person who's just ignorant of the Bible, who's all emotion and fluff and excitement and religious experiences, chasing every new idea and conspiracy theory, does that kind of person make us feel superior? Faith is in the shape of humility towards God and towards others. And this doesn't mean, by the way, that we think, oh, well, maybe they're right. And maybe I'm wrong. It's not like that at all. It means that we recognise we only stand not because we're right, but because of the mercy of God. And it means that we recognise that God may well yet graft them into his plans as well. Is your faith in God in the shape of humility towards others? The final place that faith in the shape of humility takes us In this chapter, is to wonder. We wonder at the plans of God. God is unsettling, have you noticed that? God's plans, they're unsettling. If you're not unsettled by God at times, then you're not encountering the true God. God chooses, we've been reading, some in order to show mercy. God shows mercy to some in order to eventually show mercy to those He's hardened. God hardens some, we we read, I mean we get it on the one level and yet at the same time it's, it's just beyond us isn't it? I mean I've been wrestling with this in these chapters for three weeks now and I can tell you what I thought I knew feels elusive and so faith in the shape of humility it leads us not to give God advice on what would be a better way to do it or to critique him or even to think that we can completely comprehend his plans. What it leads us to do is simply stand back in wonder. We let God be God. And this means we don't, we don't try to interfere with things that are far beyond us. You know, God's plans for his people, Israel. It, it doesn't lead us to political activism for Israel. It leads us to see that it's up to God to bring about his plans for his people. It doesn't really lead us to do anything for the political nation of Israel except pray for them like we do the rest of the nations. I once saw a, a church in America that would organise what they called a mission trip which involved them working as volunteers for free on, on Jewish farms and they believed by doing this, this was their, play, this, their way of building God's kingdom and speeding up the coming of his kingdom. That's not where this passage leads us. It leads us to leave God's plan for his people in his hands. You'll notice some Christians, they they seem drawn to getting caught up into the political workings of Israel. And I assume that they think that they'll be able to see signs of God at work there bringing in his kingdom. Or maybe that they'll be able to speed it up. But Jesus said when he was here on earth that not even he knew the timing of the end. So why would we keep our finger on the pulse of the political nation of Israel as if we could interpret or influence political events as somehow being connected to God's kingdom? That's not faith in the shape of humility. Faith in the shape of humility means we let God be God and we simply stand in wonder of his plan, which in so many ways is beyond us. And notice, this is exactly what the Apostle Paul himself does at the end of this chapter. He simply stands in wonder. And that's what I'm going to do too. Let me lead us in prayer. Oh, the riches, oh, the depth of your wisdom and knowledge, O oh God, how unsearchable are your judgments. Father, your paths really are beyond tracing out. Who has known your mind, O Lord? Or who has been your counsellor? Who has ever given to you, God, that you, God, should repay us, not us? For from you, through you, and for you are all things. And to you be the glory forever. Amen.